It's one of my missions in life is to get new pairings of faculty and grad students together and have them go through this worksheet together. Welcome to the Helium Podcast. We believe researchers should only struggle to solve the problems of scientific inquiry and the rest should be a bunch simpler. I'm Christine. And I'm Matt. And we're your hosts for Helium Podcast. So for a research group to work, you have to have all the people performing. And it's hard to mentor people, and it's also hard to be mentored. And given that that was one of the main pieces of feedback that we received from potential audience members, we know that people want insight on best practices for how do you mentor well? How do you lead people in their research groups? And that's exactly why, Christine, we invited Katie Peplin on today's episode. Katie Peplin is a coach for graduate students, and she has a lot of valuable information on how mentors and mentees can take steps in the right direction toward improving this relationship. My favorite is that she just brings so much practical guidance. She has a simple worksheet to help make meetings between professors and students more productive and just a lot of tips for what you should do to make sure that you're using your time and prioritizing the things you say yes to well. And we're going to take a couple seconds here to remind you that today's episode is brought to you by MyProfessorWebsite.com. All right, let's roll the interview with Katie Peplin. Katie, we're so glad to be talking to you today. And I guess the first thing I wanted to ask you is just, you know, what I love about your web presence is how clear and well distilled your mission is. So you say you're a graduate student coach because grad school can be better. So could you just tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a graduate student coach? Yeah. So I am um, just two years out almost to the day from graduating from the University of Michigan with my PhD in screen arts and cultures. Um, which is a fancy way of saying that um, I study TV and movies. (laughs) Um, But I went all the way through. um, I didn't take a break. I did a master's before my PhD, and then I did my undergrad right before that. And so I had always planned to be a professor. And then at some point early on in my PhD, I both realized simultaneously that I might want to have some control over the geographic location of my future employment And um, that there was a whole range of careers that were open to me because of my PhD and not necessarily in spite of it. So I worked for a while as a learning and teaching consultant at the teaching center during my PhD and then afterwards. And then at some point, just about a year ago, decided to make what was an informal practice of coaching everyone I knew around me (laughs) um, into a formal one. So I launched a one-on-one client coaching business in um, June of 2017, and then launched my group coaching uh, experience, which is called Thrive PhD, in March of of 2018. So a baby business, but one that is really going well so far because there are so many grad students that just know it can be easier. And they um, are looking for a place where it's safe to sort of say, this is hard and I'm struggling with this and to distill everyone else's advice into a system that works for them. Thanks, Katie. I, I think one of the things that I was curious about looking at your website is that there's a lot of different 
services that you provide, at least on the one, like you were saying, the one-in-one client business that you have. So are there a couple of examples that you can point out just on things that you help people with? Sure. So one of the things that I kept in mind when I was starting my business was that graduate students that are coming to me are in some state normally of crisis, I would call it. So the rates that I would need to charge per hour to make my life livable are something that I don't feel necessarily comfortable (laughs) charging grad students who are already struggling and already on (laughs) stipend, already worrying about picking up another job. So I work really hard to provide a variety of services. So I have some people that um, meet with me one-on-one. I have people that use grant money to pay for that um, or they save up for it or they ask it for Christmas. Um, But I also have things where I will email you every Monday or every Friday, your choice and say like, what went well this week? What isn't working? And what are your next steps to just sort of have somebody that in a low cost way and a sort of low impact way, you know, is looking out for your progress and thinking about what you're doing. That's not necessarily somebody that you need to report to, but somebody you can talk to. I do also do editing and sort of job document things too. I'm always looking for new services to fit both the kind of time constraints of grad students and then obviously the financial ones too. Wow. So I loved what you just kind of, what jumped out at me is the idea that you are somebody looking out for their progress. And that kind of is in line with another theme that jumps out across your work and your writing is this idea that people don't have to do this alone and that there's no shame in asking for help. So could you kind of dig into a little bit of why you feel that needs saying sort of these sort of aspects of shame, the assumption that people are alone or that they are in lack of somebody that's looking out for their progress? Right. And I think you're, um, it's really insightful to say that there's two parts of that. And I think that there's the one aspect of the graduate school experience, which I would say is actually part of the larger academic experience where there is this feeling of scarcity, right? <laughs> that there's not enough jobs, there's not enough grant money, there's not enough opportunities, there's just not enough. And so if you're not functioning, not just as the top of your game, but the top of the top of everyone's game, you have to be at the very apex to get those opportunities that to say something as radical as I didn't write today, or I haven't been in the lab in a week, or I am really struggling to even open up this document without feeling like palpable anxiety, because it doesn't just feel like, Hey, I'm struggling with this one experiment or this one paper. It really feels like, Hey, I'm struggling. And that means I'm never going to get a job and I'm never going to get tenure and I'm not going to do this thing that I really want to. So I think that's the sort of underlying motivation of why people, at least grad students, are really reticent to sort of speak up. But then there's this amazing flip side where if you offer someone a safe space to say those things, they're more than happy to not only share with you, like a person who's in this kind of position of power that I am as a coach, as much as I try to sort of equalize that playing field, but they'll absolutely and readily share with each other too, as long as the terms of that community are clear, right? <laughs> because the the difference yeah. between venting to your lab mate, knowing that they could say something to your PI or, you know, say something to the department chair, even by accident, is so much different than 
venting to somebody that totally understands your experience, but has no real way of impacting your day-to-day departmental life. And so I found that Twitter was one of the places that these people were gathering to sort of talk, but even Twitter can feel too public sometimes. So there's just a, a real sense that these conversations need to be had, but they're not necessarily ones that you can have without consequences whenever or wherever you want to. So are you feeling like when you, you know, you, you mentioned this, this group that you've started and uh, I think maybe that was in the, the time we were talking before we started recording, yeah. but you've got this, you've got this online group. And I, I was thinking about it as you were talking about people not talking to their own group mates about their problems now, maybe I'll let you talk about that group a little bit more, but I was also thinking about like, is this some, is this, what kind of disciplines are you finding are being attracted to this or is it, are there all sorts of disciplines in there in terms of the PhD? Yeah. So the group is called Thrive PhD and it's interesting because I built it very much for my own humanities brain um, where there's kind of long descriptive questions and there's these curriculum things that you can read and digest and it's not, um, it's not a form. There's no graphs. There's no visual output, but it's absolutely based on a concept called standup, which is an agile workflow concept that I know a lot of labs use too. I encountered in various startups that I've been around. Um, so it's this interesting blend of different calls to different kinds of thinking. But what the most amazing part of it is that all disciplines are attracted. I think we have like something like 30% bench scientists. I have another um, maybe 10 or 15% that are out in the field collecting lab work and then processing it when they get back. I've got probably 25% that are writing book-length manuscripts based on historical archives. And then wow. everybody else is somewhere in between. But the the idea that these struggles were disciplinary specific quickly kind of fell away when students realized that like, hey, my procrastination might look like not washing, not washing my lab glass <laughs> so that I can't start this experiment. And yours looks like not downloading those articles that you need to read so that if you get struck somewhere without Wi-Fi, you can't do your work. But the, the mechanism is the same. <laughs> so... Uh-huh. It's been really um, eye-opening for me to see that the experience is relatively universal, even if there are some sort of specific disciplinary things that happen sometimes. Yeah, you just got to tell those uh, grad students that work in the lab to get with a professor that has a dishwasher in their lab. That's a a rare luxury, but it's pretty amazing if you do get one. (laughs) That is really interesting, too, that, you know, that to tease out the mechanism being different, but that overall the sort of spirit of what is bringing you down and making you doubt yourself might come from a a similar point. Yeah. I guess along those lines, uh, thinking across your clientele, what would you say are, do things come to mind, not to put you on the spot, that as just standing out as things where people just think they're alone but in reality, they're not alone on that, but that, that, that surprises them because I've got to feel like the moment, you know, you, you said people come to you when they're in crisis. So yeah. 
there has to be this relief moment where they think, oh, found my people or, you know, now I can speak freely. Is there something that you would say, look, this is something I bet you're going to tell me you think you're alone in, but you're definitely not? Yeah. And I think that's one of those moments where I have so many clients that like come on to, I offer free 30 minute discovery calls and they're not really a sales pitch. They're just kind of a chance to talk to somebody that's a coach. Um, and I have so many people that start that conversation that are like, you're never going to believe this. This is a completely unique situation. And then it's something that I've heard seven times before. (laughs) And usually it boils down to one of kind of three things I would say. One is that it's a person that has set these incredibly high standards and goals for themselves that are quite frankly, unrealistic. And then they fail to meet them because of course they couldn't because they're not superhuman and they're feeling really down about not hitting milestones without being able to sort of say, I set bad milestones or I set inaccurate milestones is probably a better way to say it. So that's one, um, people who are disappointed that they're not superhuman And then there's two, uh, (laughs) there are people that are feeling an intense amount of shame or guilt that they have a life that's not part of their academic life for whatever reason. They might be parents, they might be caretakers, they might be getting married, they might be moving across the country, they might be dealing with an illness, but they're feeling all of this frustration that they can't keep this really strict boundary between their academic life and their human life is what I call it. Um, And they're really (laughs) kind of struggling with the idea that they can't shut off that human part in order to write more or be in the lab more. I I was just thinking about people trying to do their PhDs and be parents at the same time. I, I got to give them huge props for that because it's, it's a full-time job by itself. Yeah. And I, and I would say the same thing for people that are working a side job because they don't have a full funding package and they need that sort of extra money because there's people in their family that depend on it or people that are going through a major medical crisis, whether it's mental health or sort of physical health. There are all of these things that like count as full-time jobs. And in any other situation, it would be like, you should take some time off and deal with that. Or how else can we structure this so that your life makes more sense? But there's not always a space to do that with an academic job or a grad school job. That's so true. The skill set will be increasingly useful throughout the person's life, right? (laughs) It doesn't get simpler over time. So I think that it's really great for you to be making space for, you know, not feeling guilty for also being a full human, like you said, and, and kind of dispelling this, bubble of a myth that people maybe absorb through the culture or through a very intensive time period, like finishing a PhD, but that's going to be repeated for, you know, grant, tenure, whatever the next milestone is. You've got to learn those skills early to carve out room to be a person. Right. I call that moving the goalpost. (laughs) I feel like I have so many grad student clients and I know this was my own thinking as a grad student too, that if I could just make it to the end of the semester, everything would be better. And then at the end of the semester was the end of years and then it was my exams. And then once my prospectus is in, of course I'll feel better. And then realizing when I talked to more and more people that were settled in jobs, that that feeling never goes away. (laughs) You always think, well, I'm going to relax once I have tenure, or I'm going to relax once I'm the chair, or I'm going to relax once I'm done being the chair. Um, (laughs) That that unless you sort of make the active choice to build whatever you want to build into your life, 
this is the kind of job that will eat up all of the space that you let it have. And that starts early for sure. Yeah. I mean, the earlier you can learn those lessons, the better. It's just, it, it's one of those things that your clients are getting a head start on life because there's so much of that that goes into your career. I, I can't emphasize enough that it, that that same message from people that like you, it's never going to end unless you figure out how to balance those. Your, like you said, your academic life and your human life. I like human life. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, they, there's they, a lot, there's a lot of layers in there, right? <laughs> right. Well, and it looks different for everybody. And I think that's one of the things in the third, the third kind of category that I see all of the time are the people who feel like that because of who they are, or where they came from, they don't fit in and they're never going to fit in. And mm. I know that I certainly felt like that. Um, I come from a family that didn't have any sort of higher education degrees. My cousins and aunts and uncles still firmly believe that I will make movies one day. <laughs> and that was never the path and it won't ever be the path. But um, it, there are so many people that by virtue of the way that their lives look, they feel like they'll never be able to work it out. And part of that is because they don't see other people who look like them or have those same identity markers or have those same family configurations making it work. And when you have a culture in academia where people minimize how much they talk about their kids, for example, or they don't share that they have a stay-at-home partner that makes their childcare life possible, or they don't share with you that they were the first ones in their family to get a PhD, that it, it becomes even more isolating when you have all of these people who you assume are at the top of their game struggling with the same things you are. You just don't know it. Yeah. I, I think that one of the things about you know, thinking about those people that are at the top of their game, they're, they're, they're usually the mentors and then you're working on the mentee side of things. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder if, you know, given that our audience are mentors or aspiring mentors, I wonder if there's an aggregated message that you could sort of as having worked with all these people that if you could tell one thing or maybe a couple of things, maybe you can make it a couple points to yeah. mentors out there based on what you know, what would you say to them? Oh gosh. Well, I guess I'll start by way of an anecdote in thrive this week. We were talking about writing and writing processes and there was somebody who shared that their lab mentor showed them the first draft of an article that was going out to publish. <laughs> and not only did everyone in the group want to see this, there was this collective gasp that someone in a professor role or a lab role or even, and you could extrapolate this out into any field, I think, had shared with them work in progress. And it was this huge aha moment for the grad student to say, oh, these articles don't come out this way. <laughs> like I'm not the only one who writes a terrible first draft. I'm not the only one who puts these like big all caps things like find citation later <laughs> and has to come back to it. Um, but that this was part of the process for everyone. And that simple step of that mentor sh sharing the process, making the process more visible was this huge empowering moment for the grad student where it suddenly felt possible to, to do a career because they didn't think that they had to eventually start writing perfect articles on the first draft. So I would say that for mentors out there, 
that anything that you can do to share within reason the process that you go through in your own work can really help grad students visualize how that price process might or might not work for them. Because otherwise, they're cobbling together things that they read on the internet, things they think, bad study habits from undergrad, what have you. Like Everybody's trying to do the best they can. But the more we can have conversations about the way this work gets done, the better off, I think, grad students will feel realizing that there's not just one way to have a successful career, that there's a couple different, you know, sort of systems that they can follow. Wow. What I love about that, the whole making the process visible idea is not only the transparency and the mentorship involved in in that, but the vulnerability, it strikes me that it might solve problems on both sides, right? You don't have to be perfect and entirely collected to lead, you, you know? So you might be able to help your students in a way that also takes for you as the professor, the bar down a little bit that, you know, you don't have to come to the table with all the pieces assembled every time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that all of us feel this pressure to kind of perform the top of our game, whatever that is. And I know that as a coach, like I feel that all the time, like <laughs> here I am and I have to show up to this call and I just did two nights ago's dishes in the sink and I'm just going to pretend that this is okay. And I think that the other part of vulnerability is that to be vulnerable about some things doesn't necessarily mean you have to be completely transparent about everything in your life. And I see this all the time with grad students where they feel this sort of sense that their professors won't understand if they have a mental health crisis or if something happens in their personal lives or that kind of a thing. And I know, having seen both sides of the table, that it's not necessary for leaders to sort of telegraph everything that happens in their personal lives, every up and down, every single mood. Nobody needs that. And I think that it's actually good to have boundaries around that kind of a, around what you want to have boundaries around. But being open about the sort of professional struggles doesn't mean that you have to then also be open about every other kind of struggle too. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that a lot of mentors, they hear like, oh, I should be vulnerable with my students. And they immediately jump to kind of personal vulnerability. And I don't think eight times out of 10, that's not what people are looking for. They're looking for professional mentorship around the profession. People usually find the personal stuff where they need to. That's a really interesting point and just something to take heart that you're forming a relationship, right? And kind of, you need to read the room. There are times yeah. when you share things that are helpful. And I think probably the power dynamics involved uh, do some work to obfuscate what those boundaries should best be. One question I have that is kind of the flip side of the question Matt asked you, which I thought was interesting, just, you know, what do the graduate students most want their mentors to hear, but are there things on the flip side of empathy in the other direction oh, in terms of say commonalities that you've seen where are there things mentees most need to hear to be better mentees? Yeah. So I actually am daydreaming about writing a like professors are from Venus and grad students are from Mars book. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. There's actually 
a lot of translation that gets lost in between those two groups, but I am constantly reassuring grad students that professors are people too. And that in the same way that when I was a teacher, for example, my not remembering to answer an email or letting a grading thing go by or any sort of thing that was student facing often had very little to do with a student in specific and much more to do with me and where my life was at. (laughs) And so I think that that's such an important thing for grad students to hear too, that you have, so say a student sends an email about a lab update, you know, like this, this experiment went badly. I need your help on it. And the professor doesn't respond to it in two or three days. I can say from the mentee side that that's a panic situation more often than not, <laughs> that the, <laughs> the student is totally flipped out, that they're worried about what that silence means. And I know because I've been around humans and professors too, that often <laughs> they haven't responded because four other crises have happened <laughs> and it got buried in their inbox. And that it usually has very little to do with that student in specific and much more to do with the kind of life that person is living. And not to say that you shouldn't, that you can ignore all emails. I don't think that's the case, but really grad students often need that sort of reframe to say that no, in very rare cases, are professors doing things to specifically single out a student, (laughs) that they're just doing the best they can. And they often haven't gotten a lot of training in how to lead a lab or how to mentor people, especially how to mentor people with lives that look really different from their own. And so hearing that these are people who are learning to do the job, just as you're learning to do the job that they have, can be a really helpful way to take some of that anxiety down about those moments of miscommunication. Thank you, Katie. That's that's really insightful in terms of the in terms of the managing that relationship because really it's all what what it comes down to is realizing that communication is imperfect <laughs> mm-hmm. and that and that you need to you need to constantly be working on that it's 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 grad being a grad student is almost like a marriage right where you're yeah. always trying to improve trying to improve the channels going between the two, the mentor and the mentee and that the work never ends and that, that that sometimes things can be misinterpreted and then you just need to sit down and you need to kind of straighten things out. But oftentimes I can tell you, I've seen the inboxes of certain people and I don't even know how they keep up with them. So not answering is probably a good thing. That means that, okay, this isn't an emergency that I have to deal with. So just okay. let them continue let them continue on their merry way. No, no fires in the lab. So I'm good. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's, that's usually how that, those things shake out for sure. That'd be a great like family feud for professors and students just to <laughs> say, you know, what's the most likely reason? Right. Because I think that that kind of productive empathy is so difficult to find in, you know, as we've alluded to throughout this conversation, just there are a lot of unspoken things and and not necessarily, you know, in some cases it could be because of mismatched expectations between mentor and mentee. Sometimes it's culture. I think usually it's time, Yeah, you know, lack of time and different priorities and different incentive structures entirely for these two people who are working together so closely, their incentives individually differ greatly, you know, and 
So is, is there like one thing that comes to mind is that, you know, there are so many different sources for these friction points and difficulties, right? That we, uh, I just mentioned a few of them, like power dynamics, lack of guidance, and this mismatched expectations and time constraints. Some of these are, are truly unchangeable, right? So we can't change tenure and promotion practices or the age of, and uh, you know, the, not the chronological age, but the career track age of your leader, if you're a grad student. But are there, are there things that you find that your clients think they don't have control over, but that they actually don't realize they could change if they wanted? Yes. And I would say that actually communication practices is a huge one. <laughs> so I, one of the most downloaded things that I offer actually is this thing called a mentor planning worksheet. And I started making it because I had so many grad students that were like, I can only meet with my professor every month. I can only get them once a day, <laughs> once a month. And so this meeting is vitally important. And I always get so nervous that I forget things and I never get what I need to. And then I have to wait a whole other month because I, I'm not allowed to email them. And so I think there's a lot of things that you could unpack about that situation on both sides. One of the things that's helpful for that grad student then is to do some pre-planning for the meeting. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. if you know that you can only meet infrequently, doing things like sending an agenda ahead of time. Here are the four things that I really want to talk about in this meeting so that other person has a sense of what you're coming into. <laughs> Making sure that you have clear follow-up dates. So I know that there have been huge miscommunications that were resolved by saying, what, at what point do you want to see this draft or this, this work? <laughs> do you want to see it when it's 80% done or do you want to see it when it's 40% done? And that mm. asking more explicitly on the part of the grad student about what the expectations are, about how often they should be checking in and what way is the best way to check in. I'm, I'm listening to this and I'm, I'm putting myself in the, in the, in the perspective of the mentor. And yeah. I'm like, I want this. I want to hand this out to all of my mentees because yeah. they're, they're, they're going to, they would love to have their grad student be that prepared for every meeting because it helps them to clearly understand what the decision points are. So right. if you don't, if you don't mind, we, we would definitely love to yes. link to that in the show well, notes for this episode. Yes. So it's one of my missions in life is to get new pairings of faculty and grad students together and have them go through this worksheet together. That's like, what is your expected email response time? When should I, when should I follow up with you if I don't get a response? At what point do you want to see my work in progress? How often do you want to hear from me? If things mm -hmm. aren't going well, what is your process on sabbatical? Um, how oh, often, yeah. you know, if, if I can't get into contact with you, how much should I rely on my other committee members? And it's these yeah. things that if you just have a conversation about it and you can have that conversation at any time, <laughs> you know what I mean? It doesn't need to be the start of that relationship. It could be right now where you just take this worksheet in and say, Hey, can we spend 10 minutes making sure that these things are kind of up just stated so that you have and I have a much clearer understanding of the ways that we're going to communicate. I love it. I love it. So I, th I think we're running out of time, unfortunately, yeah. but I, I can't help but ask a random question and you probably sure. get this all the time. Do you know what it is already? No. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite movie? Oh, I mean, I do get it all the time. <laughs> so the, the funny 
The funny thing is that I have two answers to that question. I have the, I'm at my discipline specific conference and I need to be impressive intellectually. And that uh-huh. is a film from the, um, from France, from the interwar period called rules of the game. And then there's my mm. real honest answer, which is that my favorite movie is Apollo 13 and I could watch it every day. <laughs> so, so studying film didn't. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got to write that one down. I'm going to write that. I got to write that one down. So studying film didn't ruin movies for you. Like you, when you watch them, you're not just like ruining them for your husband the whole time. Well, so my husband is grew up in and around an art house theater. So he has much more refined taste than I did at any point. But I will be honest and say that for like the last year of my degree and the year after I finished, it was a long time before I could sit down and watch like a serious movie. I watched a lot of Planet <laughs> Earth and just documentaries to recover. But um, I'm now almost ready to watch, you know, festival films again. So I gotcha. That makes that makes <laughs> not too bad. That's a year and a half. Not too bad. Yeah. yeah. Recovery bad. period. So the last thing we want to ask you is where can people find you if they're interested in your work? And of course we'll link we'll link to you oh. from the show notes, but we'll, you know, if people are want want this right now on the on the audio, where can yeah, they find right you? Now- um, my website is katiepeplin.com and that's K-A-T-Y-P-E-P-L-I-N.com. I'm also on Twitter as Katie Peplin Coach, but you can also find me on Thrive PhD on Twitter and then thrive-phd.com because I did not get that domain fast enough. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, I like uh, it. Yeah, I like it. I'm very responsive and I do offer those free 30-minute meetings just like I said. So they're not a sales pitch. It's just, they're good for me to get back in touch with anybody who wants to, and they're totally open to anybody who'd want to chat. So lots of ways to get me. Well, Katie, it's been so great to talk to you. I'm sad. I don't have a time machine, so I could meet you when I was in grad school, among other reasons. (laughs) But this has been fantastic. thank 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 you so much. Thanks for joining us on episode three of Helium Podcasts. Please join us in episode four, where a good friend of the show, Dr. David Jasby at UCLA, talks about the unique ways he has focused on funding searches throughout his career. The page for the show notes is www.teamhelium.co slash episode three. Helium Podcast is brought to you by myprofessorwebsite.com. One way to elevate your research is great communication, which requires strong messaging about the value you bring. My Professor website helps academics grow their influence and impact by creating top-tier websites that attract excellent students, collaborators, and funding opportunities. If you want to help spread the word about our podcast, please go to www.teamhelium.co slash review it. All one word, review it. There you will find instructions on how to review our podcast. It's the best way for others to find us, except for a personal referral, of course. Our music is written by Michael Blake of Portland, Oregon. You can find him on SoundCloud or at www.mblakemusic.com. Helium Podcast is produced and edited by us, Matt Hotze and Christine Ogilvie-Hendren.